Well, too often the world defines the way I see myself. And for example, I, I don't know if, if you realize this, but it's sort of trendy to grow a beard now. That you may, you may not uh, be aware of this if you don't have a beard, but I often have people who come up and, and just to admire my beard. I have people come up and congratulate me for my beard. People tell me that, that they long to have a beard like mine. And really strangely, this makes me feel really good about myself. <laughs> right? The world sort of sets the standards, tells you what's valuable, and then we're supposed to follow suit. And before you judge me, you do it too, right? It's why you care so much about the clothes you wear, how your house looks, the car you drive, how much money you make. Right? The world sets the agenda that determines what's valuable, and we follow suit. And there's one way that this world demands we conform to what is valuable, that stands above the rest. It's romance, a relationship, marriage. That if I was to tell you, hey, you can have a, a full, rich, good, complete life and never get married, never have sex, never even have a relationship, never have a partner, my guess is many of you would think that, that I'm, I'm crazy. Or that's not true. That this world says you need those things in order to be complete or whole. And for, for some reason, that, that's obviously true, right? We think of our own marriages or our own relationships and we see the value they add to our life, and we say, of course those are, are good things. Or maybe you're single now, you're longing for that relationship, and you say, if, if I had that, Tim, I, I long for that. Those are good longings. And I'm not here to say that, that romance relationships are bad. They are good things. But what I want to say is they're, they're not ultimate things. You don't need them to be whole. You don't need them to be complete. You don't need them for a rich good, full life. And yet the reality is our world sets a very different value when it comes to that. Now just think of the show The Bachelor. Right? The whole underlying premise of the show is that, that you need to find true love or else you're not complete. That something's wrong with you. And no matter what you think of the show, it's interesting. You can't deny that. Because this guy and all the women that are chasing after him, they're not just seeking a relationship. They're trying to be complete, made whole, to fix what's wrong with them. And there's a lot wrong with them, if you've ever seen the show. Right? It's fascinating. As we live in a world that says you need romance, you need sex, you need marriage, you need a partner to have a rich, good, full life. Or else you're incomplete. But friends, the world as we see it, is on its way out. That's Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 7. And it's why Paul sees singleness and relationship much differently than you or I. Then the passage we just heard Andrew read, Paul is a pastor writing to a church. To a church he helped found and plant. And he's writing to people who were married, to people who were single, to people who were widowed. Some who were divorced, some whose spouse had left them. And Paul, above all, says singleness is good. He sees singleness as a gift. But we don't see it that way, right? But so many of us, the, the, the way we think the only way to be truly happy, truly complete, or that you can't be truly happy or truly complete without a partner, a marriage, or romance. And of course this means for some of us, our marriages can't sustain the weight that we place on them. Right? Our partner isn't just expected to be our spouse. They're expected to bring us meaning and joy and completeness in life, which is completely unrealistic. 
For others of us, we're single, and that's a part of why we feel incomplete or lacking wholeness, like there's a part of us missing. And to all of us, no matter what place we're in, Paul says, no, singleness is good. You don't need a relationship to find meaning or completeness in life. So this morning is a message about singleness. For those who are longing for the spouse God has not brought, for those whose spouse betrayed them, for those whose spouse died, and for half of us married folks, right, at some point one of us will be a widow. It's for the parent whose child never marries or whose child has same-sex attraction. For any of us, this message is for all of us who think we need romance, relationship, sex to be complete or whole or have a truly rich life. That to all of us, Paul would say, you may feel that way, but the, the way you feel that is because of this world. And the world as you see it, it's on its way out. Which means we should look at singleness fundamentally differently than the rest of the world. And Paul says singleness, it's good, it's a gift, but it's only a good gift because of Jesus and his church. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians 7 under those three headings. Starting with Paul says singleness is good. And it doesn't take long for us to see that in our world singleness is not defined as a good thing. Right, that our culture thinks or puts out shows like The Bachelor, right? You have to be married to be whole. Or when our culture thinks of unmarried adult, adults, this is one of the first images that comes to mind. This is not an endorsement of that movie, all right? I just want to be very clear about that. But if you're unmarried, single, not in a relationship, this is often the stereotype, right? Immature, not properly adjusted, waiting to be fixed. Right, the tagline of the movie is better late than never. Right? The, the assumption there is if you're single, you haven't arrived yet. You still have more work to do. And many movies have this same tiresome plot where the, the terrible, hopeless, immature single finds a relationship, finds someone who makes them complete whole, and their life is just great and awesome and together and everything's fixed. Right? That's the plot of so many movies. And sadly, we in the church have not done much better at telling a different story. Uh, today, 46% of the American population over the age of 18 is single. Which means about one out of every two adults is not married. And yet, in churches like ours, evangelical churches, less than 25% of, of uh, adults over the age of 18 um, come to church. Right? So whereas our population, about one out of every two adults is single, and the church is more like one out of every four. Which means we're not doing a good job preaching the gospel to single people. That our church should reflect the demographic of those around us. And if it doesn't, it means we're not really reaching our community. We're just a subset. We're sort of a ghetto within the community of people just like us. It means our church isn't really truly for everyone in our community. And as a pastor, I've repeatedly listened to singles express frustration with the church. How we make marriage often in this place a status symbol. That if you're better, or you're better if you're married. Or we treat marriage as the ultimate destination, right? So someone's singleness becomes their defining quality in life with the expectation that eventually they should get married. Right? Grow up, get, get married. That's what everyone's supposed to do. And of course, none of this has been intentional, right? We in the church, I don't think we've intentionally tried to make singleness a second-class citizen. But the reality is many of the ways that we act and talk and live in church implicitly send that message. 
And sometimes, frankly, we explicitly send the message that we prefer families. I was driving by a church not too long ago, a big banner on, on where they're adding on that says, making room for you and your family. But what if you're single, divorced, widowed? What does that communicate to you? It's an explicit message of, well, we want your family, if you have one. Or I think about what the church taught me growing up. I grew up in the church about what singleness was, and largely it was abstinence, right? It was the absence of sex. But that's not a very robust view of singleness, the absence of something, right? So as a teenager, it was sort of like, just hold on for dear life. You're going to get married someday. It'll get better. And yet that's so far from what we heard Paul say. The singleness is not the absence of sex. It's the presence of many other good, beautiful, wonderful things that are not possible in a married life. And so today, if, if you're single... Whether you're 15 or you're 50, I hope you'll hear Paul says, he looks at your singleness, he says it's good. And we want to be a church, it's a home for place, for people who are single. We do not want to privilege families or marriage here as a church. We need a robust view of what singleness is. And Paul lays it out, or begins to at least, in verse 25 um, here in chapter 7. Here's what Paul says about, as he leans into this conversation. And now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, there is a lot going on here, and we don't have time to unpack every question that's in this passage. But let's start with just, what does betrothed mean? What, who's Paul talking to? We don't use that word. Who talks like that? Right? I think that the, the main people Paul is addressing here are Christians in this church in Corinth who are engaged. That's what it meant to be betrothed. The Paul's primary audience are couples who are engaged and debating whether or not to actually go through and get married. Because if you remember a few weeks back, uh, there, were a, there was a large population in this church that said all sex is bad, right? And marriage is bad. And even if you're married, you shouldn't have sex because that makes you a, a worse Christian than celibate, um, the celibate lifestyle. Isn't it interesting? You know, if you lived 2,000 years ago and you were single, you would have been the one in charge, the one with a higher status. Today, we've just flipped it. And so Paul writes to these, these Christians saying, no, they're wrong. You shouldn't be single because sex is bad. That's not a good reason to be single. But yet, Paul says, yeah, I would say singleness is good. It's, and even, I would argue, Paul is, has a preference towards singleness here for the Corinthians in this moment. And he gives two reasons um, why that is. But before we press into those reasons, this should first at least surprise us that Paul would prefer singleness. Right? I mean, Paul was a Jewish male. And if you think our culture puts an unexpected pressure of, of marriage and kids, Jewish culture did way more than we do in our world. And yet Paul, as a single guy himself, writing this letter, breaks trends with his culture and says, no, there's a new way of seeing life and seeing singleness. And singleness is good. So Paul's breaking with his own tradition here in in some ways. And so he gives two reasons why he prefers singleness. And the first one is in verse 26, where he says, because of this present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. And, And... The question being, well, what's this present distress? What's Paul pointing at here that would lead him to say singleness is actually a really good option? Well, elsewhere, this word distress is used to refer to suffering Christians could expect 
because you follow Jesus. Now, throughout the New Testament, there's this assumption that the church will continue to undergo suffering until Jesus comes back. That until our final redemption at the coming of Christ, the church will be a place of suffering. That if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. And the New Testament speaks at great length to that. Even if in our context, in America, in the church today, we don't speak to that very often. And my guess is many of you maybe became Christians because you thought Jesus would take your suffering away. He'd make life better. Yeah, the New Testament does not offer that promise to us. In Paul's day, the church suffered terribly. And today around the world, our church continues to suffer terribly. So Paul is saying something like this here. That if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. Life is going to be hard. And if you get married, your suffering is going to be multiplied. And as your pastor is someone who loves you, I would spare you that multiplication of pain. I would spare you that. For example, we as a church have been praying for an Iranian pastor named Farshid. He's serving um, a seven-year prison sentence. He's four years in, and he's 34. He has two kids. I'm 31, almost 32. I have two kids. And no doubt that has greatly increased his suffering and his pain, not to mention his wife and his kids' suffering and pain, while he spent his time in prison just for being a Christian pastor. That Paul knew people like Farshid in his day. And that's what I think Paul means when he says, those who, have marri- those who are married in life, they're going, to have ad- they're going to have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I think that's what Paul's pointing at. He's not saying marriage is bad and should be avoided. Only that marriage is going to be in some ways harder for the Christian because being a Christian will enter suffering into your life. And to be married and to undergo that suffering adds a whole new dimension of complexity and pain that, that's not there not that suffering's not hard if you're single, but it's, it's different when you're married. But that, that's sort of a negative reason to be, suffer, to, to be single, right? You'll, it'll ease your suffering. But there, Paul actually gives a positive reason there in verse 29 through 31 that we need to hear as well, why he preferences singleness for those, for the Corinthians here. Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I remember reading that this week and thinking, what in the world does Paul mean there? Right, obviously can't be literal. Excuse me. He's not saying, hey, don't ever mourn, don't ever rejoice, don't ever buy anything. I mean, that's not possible in life. And Paul doesn't mean don't do those things. He's saying live as if you're not doing those things. Again, not saying don't mourn, don't rejoice. What he's saying is that that the world should not have a dominating control or influence over you. Our mourning and our rejoicing, our money, none of those things should dictate our existence. Because the present form of this world is passing away. The world as you and I see it, it's on its way out. Which means when we mourn, when we rejoice, when we buy, we approach those things fundamentally different than the world. And when we think about relationship and romance, singleness and marriage, we approach those things fundamentally different than the world. Because the the world as we see it and know it, the things that this world places value on, that that, that world is passing away. 
Which is why Paul can say your singleness is good because marriage is not the ultimate good. Jesus is the ultimate good. That if you are in Christ, you are in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom isn't just, hey, you get to go to heaven one day when you die. It's a kingdom that's breaking into this world now that offers us who are in Christ a new way to see the world, a new set of priorities, a new way to see our own lives. That if you're a single Christian, the most essential part of your life is not your marital status. It's Jesus. And if you're married, the fundamental status of your life is not how well your marriage is going, how many kids you have. It's Jesus. That if you're in this kingdom, that's the single most and only defining quality of who you are. It's the only thing that adds value to who you are, is who you are in Christ. And so romance, marriage, sex, those are all good things, but they are not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is Jesus, which means you can live without any of those things, as long as you have Christ. And that's why Paul can say, your singleness is good. Whether you single, you're single and want to be married but aren't, whether you're single, don't want to be married, whether you're, you're widowed, whether you're divorced, whether your spouse left you, whatever reason you are for being single, Paul says it doesn't matter because marriage is not the ultimate. Jesus is. And his kingdom is breaking into this world. That the world, as you and I see it, is on its way out. And there is a new kingdom and a new king breaking in. Which means we as a church should say credibly and forcefully and encouragingly to all who are single, your status and place in life is good. You're not incomplete. You're not waiting, right? You are good who you are in and of yourself in Christ. That's a message we need to communicate. The singleness is, is good. But it's not just good, it's also a gift. And Paul himself referred to singleness as a gift in verse 7, earlier in chapter 7. He's talking about his own singleness. He says this. He says, I wish that all were as myself am. Paul says, I wish everyone was single. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of an, another. All right, some of you have the gift of marriage. Some of you have the gift of singleness. I have to be honest, I've often misunderstood what Paul said here. That I, I tend to see gift... Uh, as something that I receive that's for me, that I enjoy, that's for my own self. Right? I mean, that's, I guess, how most of you see a gift. And yet, Paul, when he uses the word gift here in 1 Corinthians, and this is something we're going to talk more about um, in the weeks to come, but Paul does not use this word to refer to something for you that you get to receive and enjoy yourself. Right? That a lot of times when people talk about singleness as a gift, they, they mention it as, as, well, you have the gift of not wanting marriage or not having any sexual desires, and therefore it's for you, it's about you, it's, it's your own thing. And yet, I've never met anyone that has that gift. Right? I mean, very few people come into this world with no sexual desires or no desires for marriage. Some do, some, that, that's true of very few people, but that's not what Paul means when he means you have the gift of singleness, that you don't want a relationship. What I think Paul means is if you are single, you have the gift of singleness. Because it's not about you. It's about others and the way that you can serve and love others. And some here in Corinth had found themselves single. And most of the people Paul was speaking to here were single not by their own choice. They were widowed. Their spouse had walked out on them. They wanted to be married but weren't. Or they were engaged to be married but the other partner didn't want to marry them now. They were single not by their own choice. And yet Paul still says singleness is your gift. 
So Paul spells out, I think, a little bit of what he means by this. The singleness, it's a gift for others in verses 33 and 34. Here's what he says. He says, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, what Paul is not saying here is, you know, if you're married, your spouse is just going to weigh you down and make you anxious, right? Even if that's true for you. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying marriage is a bad thing. It's just going to add to your burdens or, or the things that, that, that frustrate you. Now, Paul is, I think this is what Paul is getting at. That you and I, if you're a Christian, or really if you're not a Christian either, you're called to do two things. Love God and love others. Right? I mean, it's really simple. Everything, you're, everything your life is about should be about those two things. Loving God, loving others. And Jesus said that was the greatest commandment. And yet I often split those two things. Right? My loving of God is, is, is when I pray, or it's when I come to church, it's when I worship. That's how I love God. And when I love others, it's like doing acts of kindness or or when I call someone to encourage it, like it's, right, it's, 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 it's different. And yet, even when Jesus was laying this out, love God, love others, he says the first one, or the second one is like the first. In other words, the primary way you love God is by loving others. And yet for me, being married, my loving of God and others has already been preset and predetermined. Right? I have a spouse, I have two young boys. Who I love and how I love God has already been greatly predetermined for me. And I made that choice, right? I mean, it's, it's, I entered into that. It's a gift to me. But I am very limited in the way that I'm able to love others. And I think that's why Paul sees singleness as a gift, right? He's not saying marriage is bad. It's, it's a good thing. That's where your love is going to go, largely, if you're married. But if you're single, you have far more freedom to love and to engage others. And that's why it's a gift for others, not for yourself. You have a capacity to enter into people's lives in ways no one else can. And so I want to spend the bulk of this morning actually just walking through the way singleness is a gift. If you're single, you're a gift to us as a church, both to encourage those of you who are single, but also for us who are married to know how to pray for and encourage and to, to, to walk alongside our single brothers and sisters in Christ. So there are four ways I think singleness and single folks are a gift to us as a church. The first, singleness shows us sacrificial love. I think we often hear about that in the context of marriage, right? The sacrificial love you're called to with your spouse. But the reality is when it comes to sacrifice, couples don't have a corner on that market. We are all called to sacrificial love, right? It's just that in marriage, the sacrifice is, is already set. It's predetermined who those people are. But in the single life, your sacrificial love can take on a million different faces. That I read a great book on singleness in prepping for this message called Singled Out. And here the author said this about singleness and, and sacrificial love. So while the metaphor of marriage gives us insight into the permanent exclusive relationship between God and us, the metaphor of singleness captures a different aspect of this, this relationship. And that reminds us of God's intense love for everyone and his desire that all will have fellowship with him. Both metaphors are necessary to help reveal the complexities of God's love for us. Right, that if you're single, you have a way to show God's intense love for others that we need in this world and we wouldn't have if everyone was married. And so if you're, in, you're single, I just encourage you to see this church in this space as a place to offer your sacrificial love. And I know that'll be difficult at times. 
that sometimes simply sticking around for Sunday conversation is difficult as a single and a coupled world. That we married folks are often blind to the fact that we always have someone standing next to us to help quell the awkwardness of will someone come and talk to me. But yet every single who braves this small talk, pressing through conversations that usually require you to explain everything you're not, right? And at the same time enter into the world of the nuclear family, hear about kids and marriage with, pressure, with precious few questions coming your way about your life. Right? That we married folks have a tendency to talk only about our kids or our marriage and miss the fact that we're more than just spouses or our kids. And often singles are out in those conversations. And friends, this is, if you're single, this is a loving sacrifice you can offer to us as a church, a sacrifice that will make us who are married better Christians. But it's not just showing up or staying after for conversation. It's about entering in, learning the world of curious George and competitive soccer. Not because you care, initially you will not care, but because it's the start. The start of entering in. The start of you being able to show God's intense love for everyone, especially those who are different from you. Now, I love the, the vision of Eve Tushnet, how she lays out for this. I quoted her a couple weeks ago. She's a same-sex attracted, single Catholic woman, Christian. And she says this about, uh, offers this beautiful picture of what sacrificial love can look like as a single. She says this, for single lay people who live alone, it might be worth asking, are there ways I could get a little closer to offering the on-call love my married and parenting friends so often must provide? Are there times when I hold myself back from others because I'm too attached to my own freedom, the pleasure of my own company, and the security of my own plans and preferences? Do I choose ways of helping and giving that, that are more gratifying to my ego, such as giving advice or selecting presents I know they'll enjoy and praise, but avoid the, the, the boring and gross tasks of love like making casseroles and learning to burp infants? Could I live the more demanding and chaotic life of the person who has a duty to love. And we are all called to this love, but singles can offer a unique expression of that love for us as a church. And so if you're single, we, we need that gift for you to show a sacrificial love that's not possible inside the context of a marriage. So singleness reminds us of sacrificial love. It's one way it's a gift to the church. Second is singleness reminds us our identity is in Jesus alone. Now, Christian singles, in many ways, don't fit in anywhere. Right? The, our culture cannot understand or sympathize with a group of people who would choose to remain celibate or not engage in sex outside of the context of marriage, or even just see celibacy or not, not needing a relationship to be complete as, a, as a, a good way of life. It's completely countercultural. And in the church, even worse, right, single people can sometimes feel isolated, surrounded by families and kids. And even if, if, if that's what you long for or if it's not, this can be a place of reminder of pain some days. That even on the days when we aren't ha hanging big banners saying we want your family, we're still sending implicit messages that we privilege marriage and kids. But in a world that constantly feeds us lies, that says you need romance, relationships, sex to have a rich, full life. Your life, if you're single, is a testimony that the world as we know it is on its way out. That the only ultimate is Jesus. That the, the only ultimate is a God who, who loves you and who knows you. And you can say that with the credibility as a single person. 
that this world needs. Let me just especially encourage you, if you're, if you're a teenager, this is a, an amazing space for you to be different than the, the kids around you. I mean, I remember in high school, everyone was dating everyone, and if you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you were someone or you weren't someone. And to, to not live into that, but to truly live out the fact that if you're in Christ, that's the one ultimate you need in life, you will be utterly different than all, all your friends. All your, and I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying that's one space you can live into that would be hugely refreshing and good news for your friends who are crushed by the reality of this, this thought that we need a girlfriend, a boyfriend to be whole or complete. That the gift of singleness is a powerful reminder to us that our identity rests in Jesus and Jesus alone. We belong to him. So if you're single, you can demonstrate that in a unique and powerful way. So singleness, it's a gift because you can show us sacrificial love, because you remind us our identity is only in Jesus. And thirdly, because singleness is a reminder of our call to friendship. In his book, uh, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam points out that we, we live in a culture now that has fewer and fewer friendships. And he sort of goes about this in two ways. One is that, that between 1980 and 1993, the, in, the number of bowlers increased by 10%. Yes, bowling, I know it's not a super popular thing. I'm not saying I like to bowl, but, but he said more people started bowling by 10%, and yet the leagues of bowlers dropped by 40%. And he said it was a telltale sign of the culture that we're disengaging from clubs and community and going to the bowling alley alone. That's one metaphor he uses. The other is, is of our own homes. That, for example, my, my, uh, the, the, the house that my grandma um, uh, grew up in had a, a front porch that went out to the sidewalk that was f- close to the sidewalk. So you could see people walking by and you could know your neighbors and greet one another. But my wife and I were moving into a house today that, that was built 20 years ago. It's got an amazing back deck away from people. Right, a front door way off the sidewalk and even kind of closed off a little bit from the side back. So the message is clear. Do not come into my house. I don't want to know you. Right, and a lot of us, we're okay with that isolation, aren't we? That we live in isolated lives. And singleness is a gift to remind us that if you're in Christ, your family boundaries are not drawn around your house or your home. They're drawn in this place, in this church. The Genesis 2, when God looked at Adam and said, listen, you need some help, I'm going to give you Eve. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. It wasn't just about marriage. It's about the idea that humanity, we're built for community, right? God himself is three persons in one. That we're built for relationship and friendship. And yet, because of the way we structure life and the way we retreat into our own homes and families, we can think we have community, right? I always have three people at my house at all times around me. But it doesn't mean I have community, doesn't mean I'm known. It doesn't mean I enter in. And singleness is a reminder. We have to work hard as humans to have true friendships. And more than that, it's a reminder that we as a church, we're not just nuclear families. We are one family together as we gather, and we need that. That's why Paul in his letters says, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why he refers to the church as the household, the family of God. This is to be a family filled with friendships that cross all kinds of age lines, of socioeconomic lines, of racial lines, from married to single. And yet we all have a tendency to pull inward, to only know people like us, to only be friends with people like us, to only spend time with our own families. And singleness is a reminder. That's, a, that's a, not a great way or not a rich, full, good way of life, that our relationships should go beyond those boundaries. We should not be defined by our nuclear families. 
So singleness is a gift because it shows a sacrificial love. It reminds us that our identity is in Christ. It reminds us that, that we as a, need to be a family as a church. And finally, fourthly, it reminds us that we, every one of us, are all still waiting. Now, even the most faithful singles that I know who love Jesus and live into their singleness with maturity and grace and, 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 and follow after Jesus with everything in, in them, they still have days of loneliness, of brokenness, feelings of inadequacy. That the aches in our lives, whether you're single or whether you're married, they just are. And our best efforts at, at redirecting or reframing them don't really speak to the truth you and I all have to live into. Right? The temptation is for us to make something else what can cure our ache or cure our longings. But singleness reminds us we're not aching for sex. We're not aching for marriage. We're not aching for a spouse, for more money, for a better house, for a better job. We're not aching for any of those things. And that in all of our longings, all of our wishing that life was better than what it was, singleness says that's okay. It's the world in which we live. Henry Nowen, a Christian, said this about this longing we all experience, who himself was a single man. He said, when we're impatient, we want to give up our loneliness and try to overcome the separation and incompleteness we feel, we easily relate to our human world with devastating expectations. We ignore what we already know with a deep-seated, intuitive knowledge that no love or friendship, no intimate embrace or tender kiss, no community, commune, or collective, no man or woman will ever be able to satisfy our desire to be released from our lonely condition. The now one is saying something close to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. That Paul is talking about salvation. It's one of the best chapters in all the Bible of what it means to be saved and to be in Christ. And yet there's this moment when he talks about what it means to be saved. And he, he says this. He says, for in this hope we, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. And singleness speaks to the fact we're all waiting with patience. That there will always be a remnant of loneliness in this life for all of us. Because every one of us were ultimately built and made for a relationship with God. Until that's put right. Until that's put back together the way it's meant to be. No human relationship or longing will ever fill that break. That only Christ is our ultimate good. And if you're single, you can speak to that and live that out in a way that reminds us this is not our home. That the world as you and I see it is on its way out. And we're waiting for that process to be finished. And so singleness is a gift to us as a church. It may not always feel like a gift. In fact, it won't always feel like a gift. But it is. And we who are married need to encourage and pray for and lift up our single brothers and sisters. And our single brothers and sisters need to be the gift to us that we need as a church. So singleness is good. Singleness is a gift. But it's only a good gift because of Jesus and his church. That as, as someone who's right, given his life, sort of as many of you are, to help start this new church, my, one of my prayers is that we would be a family for, for everyone. For everyone. For old and young. For single and married. For those who have their lives together, for those who don't. And in a world where families often isolate themselves, 
and don't have others into their homes very often. We're in a world where singles often feel on the outside of a coupled world. I pray this would be a place of family where we would truly known and be known. That the only way singleness can truly be a good gift is if this place is the family we're called and meant to be as Christians. Now granted, I'm not saying you need to be really close friends with everyone in this room. I'm not saying we all need to go out, buy our matching t-shirts, and huddle and sing kumba. I'm not saying that, right? I mean, that, that's not realistic. And yet, and yet there should be people in this room whom you're not related to biologically that you should see as, as family and as you can count on no matter what happens. Now, I would just ask, do you have close, personal friends who are single, not married, who speak into your kids' lives, if you have kids? Do you have close, personal friends outside your own family? Are you friends with people who are different from you, whether it's socioeconomic, race, marital status? Do you have people in your life that are different than you, speaking into your life? Now, that's what family is, right? You don't choose those people. They just get thrown on you, and then you got to make it work. And that's the church, right? People come in, and we don't get to pick and choose who comes in and who doesn't. We welcome everyone who comes in. And as we come into Christ, we create a family. And it's messy, it's complicated, it's difficult. And I know you're thinking, well, how do we do that? Well, let me just give you three simple next steps for how we can create this new church, this space, into into not just a place we come on Sunday mornings, but truly a family. Three thoughts. One, and these all come from Eve Tushin, again, single Christian woman who just is really thoughtful and, and good here. So three thoughts, next steps of how we can create this space into a family. First, don't be pushy, but don't be shy. You'll never have a depth of relationships by hoping in silence, which means you have to risk rejection in order to find friends. Now, I love the way Eve puts this. She says you should throw handfuls of glitter into the void. All right, that doesn't speak to me as a guy, but it's just, it's a good image, kind of. Right, it's, it's weird, but, but what she's saying is just, just invite people over to coffee, to lunch, to get to know them. And who cares if they say no? Right, one of the difficulties of church is we all long for community, but if you just show up and hope it happens, it's not going to happen. You have to, to, to not be pushy, but not be shy. Invite, reach out, especially to people who are different from you. Especially to people who are single as well, right? Work harder at including them. Because in a couple world, they're often the first people left out. Let's sit by them in church, right? Find new people to have lunch with. Just don't be pushy, don't be shy. That's, that's one. Second kind of practical thought is apologize and forgive a lot. As my friend Nathan Miller at, the, at our LA the campus likes to say, People are the worst. And we are all people, right? Which means we're going to screw up with other people, do lots of wrong things to them, and they're going to do lots of wrong things to us. And that's why we need to apologize and forgive a lot. Because if we don't do that, then we'll never get past that place. You'll never stick it out when it's tough. And you'll never get the lasting trust that comes from looking that other person in the face and knowing they will forgive you of anything because they already have. So let's apologize and forgive a lot here. So don't be pushy, don't be shy, apologize, forgive a lot. Thirdly, put it on the calendar. All right, look at your calendar. Is there a space that you can say, that's where my church becomes my family? The Wesley Hill, a guy I've quoted a lot over the last couple weeks, 
<clears throat> points out that as a single guy, his post-college friendships with others have only come from frequent and planned interactions with others. Right? He has a family. He goes, every Wednesday night, he goes has, has dinner at their house. So that's the only way we become friends is to put it on the calendar. Right? Which means whoever you are, whether you're married or single, you need to have space you're carving out to invite others into your life, whatever that looks like for you, so that this place becomes family. Right? But that's the only way it happens is to put it on the calendar, for it to be frequent and it, for it to be planned. And I know we're, you're all thinking, but my calendar's already too full. I already have too many things going on. And the reality is, it's true for all of us. Singles are way too busy. Married people are way too busy. We're all way too busy. And yet, this place will never become a family unless those frequent and planned interactions become a part of our rhythm. Putting it on the calendar, protecting it, leaving it there. Whatever that looks like for you and your life. But remember, as we Christians interact, as people come into your home or as you meet people... We never meet each other as guests. Right? It's always, we're, we're family. That's why Paul says brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? That's why we should think of one another not as guests in each other's homes, not as guests meeting one another, but as family. Because we as a church, we are, for better or worse, a family. The brothers and sisters who have turned our lives over to Jesus, the ultimate good in life. Which means you can be single and have a rich, good, and full life in Christ. Or you can be married and have a rich, good, and full life in Christ. Because the world as we see it is on its way out. There's a kingdom breaking in with a better king and a new family. Who always has a place at his table.